This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Welcome to Rohatsu Session. Once again, Buddha is awakened. And as I mentioned to some people yesterday, one of the wonderful aspects of Rohatsu Session is that we're joined by many, many people around the Zen world, which is a big world, in this session. Many hundreds of people, at least in Japan, in uh, America, maybe more than Japan these days. I imagine that uh, just in California alone, there's probably 20 Rohatsu Sashins and another 30 or so, maybe around the US, probably every country in Europe, there's a Rohatsu Sashin going on right now. And uh, maybe China and India and uh, maybe even Africa, probably at least one. Australia, for sure. <laughs> this is how the Zen world is these days. And uh, as Zen practitioners, we uh, can't miss Rohatsu, even if we're just sitting for a day, even if we're just sitting in for a talk or two. This is our time to celebrate the, the Buddha's great awakening. It's Christmas time coming up. So that's like in, in one religion, it's celebrating the, the birth of the founder. And we celebrate Buddha's birth too, but, um, but us Zen folks, um, Birth and pari nirvana are, are important, but Buddha's awakening is most important. Within Buddha Dharma, there are many vehicles of practice. And it's good for people who want to practice Buddha Dharma to practice the vehicle with which they feel most resonant with. The vehicle that accords most with each of our individual inclinations. And there's many available. There's Theravada Buddhism, traditionally uh, offered for uh, those particularly inclined towards the practice of being content with little. 
very simple lifestyle and simple practice. There's the great vehicle of the bodhisattvas for those inclined towards great compassion, care for all beings. And there's the Zen vehicle that includes both of these, includes being content with little and simplicity. It includes great compassion for all beings. But Zen is particularly the vehicle that points directly to nature of mind itself, points directly to the nature of reality without recourse to long scriptures and excessive verbosity. (laughs) So for those inclined towards such a practice we call Zen, you've come to the right place today. And during this Rohatsu Sashin, I feel inspired to explore with you some teachings of our great ancestor, Keizan Zenji, in his record of transmitting the light, Denko Roku, Probably everyone here knows of Dogen Zenji. We consider the founder of our lineage in Japan. But maybe less known is Keizan Zenji, who is really considered like a co-founder of Soto Zen in Japan, along with Dogen. Four generations after Dogen, Keizan, kind of like illuminated the the lineage. It was still small in Japan after a few generations and Keizan skillfully found ways to expand his practice and this understanding in this way uh, um, all over Japan to um, lay people as well as monastics. And uh, Keizan's main teaching that comes down to us today is this record of transmitting the light. And it's the, uh, it's Dharma talks in sessions that uh, Keizan gives on the stories of all the ancestors of his lineage, our lineage from Shakyamuni Buddha through 28, Indian ancestors, through all the Chinese ancestors, uh, through Dogen Zenji, up to uh, Keizan's Dharma grandfather, Koun Ejo Daiosho. 
And like this morning, we chanted the names of the ancestors up through Kezan. How appropriate in this session. Sometimes we continue from Kezan, the lineage continues all the way through Suzuki Roshi and the founder of this temple, uh, and so on. But sometimes in, in Soto Zen temples, the lineage is just chanted through Keizan uh, because all, all Soto practitioners uh, share the lineage through Keizan. Keizan had many disciples and after him, the lineage starts branching out. Even those of us in the, in the room and the, uh, and the screen here today and share various lineages um, that branch out from Keizan Zenji. And Keizan collected these stories from the, from the old Chinese records. There's um, lamp records, transmission of lamp records in China where uh, the stories of these Indian ancestors are recorded. And so uh, Keizan just pulled out these stories and then commented on them uh, freshly and exuberantly and meticulously. And uh, here we have, uh, we have um, a translation to several in English. This is uh, Francis Cook's translation and his introduction, which is quite excellent, I think, a lot of history about Kazan and so on. But I think this, this paragraph kind of sums it up here in the introduction. In the course of documenting the ancestral succession over the generations, Kazan centers his talks primarily on two topics. One is the necessity to be totally committed to realizing awakening, to take Zen seriously, and to make supreme, have supreme diligence in Zen practice. This is also a focal point in Dogen's writings. And uh, both of these ancestors are equally concerned with the training of their students and the selection of successors. So not only are they talking about this lineage of ancestors, they're, um, they're concerned with making sure that it continues. It's no small matter. Somehow it's able to have continued up to the present, but uh, it's always hanging by a thread. It, uh, it could be cut off at any moment, easily. So uh, there's something worth keeping alive here. And all the Zen ancestors are devoting their lives to making sure that it's kept alive. That's the first point. The uh, second emphasis and indeed, the overwhelmingly central focal point of all these chapters of stories 
is the light in the title. This is light. Koen. Japanese. Luminosity. It's this light that is transmitted from teacher to disciple as the disciple discovers the light within herself. In fact, Francis Cook says, once the light is discovered, this is the transmission. The light is one's Any guesses what he says next? Buddha nature. Buddha nature. Wow. <laughs> Tracy's channeling Francis Cruz. <laughs> <laughs> the light that must be discovered that is the transmission. This light is Buddha nature or true. Any guesses what the next word is? Mind. Those are all true. Self. Self. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good channeling going on here. True self. Are they allowed to talk that way <laughs> in, the, in the Buddha Dharma? And this self in this English translation has a capital S. Some of us um, this fall studied Sri Maladevi Sutra and she used this term, Atma Paramita, the, the perfect self, the transcendent self when speaking of Buddha nature. Uh, Kazan uses a number of striking and provocative epithets and titles for this true self, including, quote, true self, unquote. <laughs> In quotes, that one, that's an epithet for Buddha nature, that one, that person, that old fella, <laughs> that old gal, the lord of the house, the lord of the house. Yeah. Kazan's allowed to say it. We're not stopping him. And then this goes on to say that such language is uncommon in Dogen's writings, as is the focus on discussing the existence and the nature of this old fella. But that's part of what constitutes Kazan Zen as distinct from Dogen Zen. This is just a nice summary of this long introduction. Kazan's really into this Buddha nature and talking about it in this kind of positive way that it's a reality. It's not just the absence of everything that we think. It's not just emptiness, although that's another name for it, but it's radiant, 
luminous, knowing emptiness. And uh, another thing about Keizan Zenji is um, he had many women disciples. Dogen had some too. We don't hear about them as much. Our lineage after Keizan comes through Gassan Joseki and so on. But um, or we chanted also the, the women ancestors this morning. And uh, I'm pretty sure that in our, our list there, I think five of them are Kazan's disciples. More than anybody else on that list, these are Kazan students. And uh, just to let you know, Ekyu, Acharya Ekyu, or Kinto Ekyu, was a disciple of Kazan, and she was the first woman in Japan to inherit the Dharma of the Soto lineage. To receive Dharma transmission from Keizan. Apparently Dogen um, you know, formally um, transmitted the Dharma to just a, a few people like Ko and Ejo. Um, so the first to inherit the lineage was Ekyu in the country of Japan through Keizan. I don't know what happened to her lineage since then, if there's, any, if there's anyone left carrying that on. So many changes, so many political conditions, so many wars, famines, and droughts in Japan since that time. It hangs by a thread. So also a um, disciple of Keizan is Eikan, Acharya Eikan, uh, who is actually Keizan's mother, his blood mother. He was very devoted to his mother. He built a, like a hermitage for her at, the, at his monastery for the, the end of her life and um, took care of her. She was also the abbess of a small um, temple, maybe even on the grounds of the larger monastery. Another disciple of Keizan was Acharya Mokufu Sonin. We chant her name too. Uh, she was a, um, a Dharma heir of Keizan and, um, and an important um, donor before that. She was like a, a, um, in the aristocracy and helped um, sponsor the Keizan's temples and later was ordained and uh, and became a Dharma heir and the abbess of another small temple. Um, Acharya Shozen, do we get Shozen? Shozen is Mokufusonian's mother, hmm. who was never ordained as a priest, but was a um, devoted lay disciple of Keizan. Acharya Myosho Enkan, was Keizan's cousin and also his devoted student and also was the abbess of another temple, her later part of her life. Cool, <laughs> I think. The light 
when recognized, when realized, and appreciated, and uh, honored is, is the transmission. And, uh, and it's transmitted from someone who's uh, realized the light and the teachings of how to realize the light. And uh, they realized it from their teacher who realized the light. And they inherited that from their teacher who realized the light all the way back like this in an unbroken lineage. which is fragile, which hangs by a thread. Why? The light, it's not the light's problem. The light is radiantly shining 24-7 and uh, can't be lost, can't be found as some particular experience can't be grasped and can't be rejected, always available as our true nature. Um, but the problem is there's a lot of other stuff going on in this world that's, um, that seems like more interesting to many people than the light. <laughs> the light's very ordinary. It's not really much of anything at all. Thus, it's sometimes said, ordinary mind is the way. In fact, as I recall, Kazan himself, whose story is not recorded in this record due to his own humility, uh, Awoken, awoke to the way through hearing this old Zen phrase, ordinary mind is the way. That was Kazan's awakening, as I recall. But us humans, we're into extraordinary. all kinds of interesting things uh, that, um, that take up our time and energy. Isn't it true? So um, what, what a rare and unusual thing it is that all of you are here today, um, devoted to the light. You couldn't find anything better to do <laughs> than to sit here and uh, open to the radiance that is here now, always. Usually directed outwards, we can practice turning the light that's directed outwards around all those rays of light 
we can trace back to their source, which we can't find because it's, it's hidden in the mist. It's it like up in the higher hills where the where the brook becomes very um, small and sometimes travels underground and covered with ferns and moss. When we try to follow the stream to its source, it's just a mossy fern-covered, mist and shrouded. We don't know what. And the source is not located in some particular point, which is how we usually look for things located in some particular point. It's more that it's actually uh, filling every point in the universe, which makes it a little hard to see. It is the seeing of every point in the universe. But us humans, we're more into particular points than the knowing of this point and that point. And we're into the, the knowing of this point and the knowing of that point and how those are two different knowings, but um, it's hard to open to the knowing that's the same knowing of every point. And that's the kind of light that we're uh, opening to. These are our ancestors. And uh, part of the practice is to uh, honor these ancestors, right? That's why we recite their names day after day and we bow to their names and we offer incense to their names to their light because revering Buddhas and ancestors, we are one Buddha and one ancestor and awakening to this aspiration of uh, for awakening. We are one aspiration for awakening. We have to do this together because uh, there's no other way. So some stories that I haven't spent so much time with, so I felt like spending more time with them. We start in the middle of the, of the book. Nagarjuna is the 14th Indian ancestor in our lineage, Nagyaharajuna Dayosho, one of the most important Indian ancestors across many traditions, including Zen. We taught the middle way that's um, free of this location and that location. 
and even free of being in between two locations, that kind of middle way. And uh, Nagarjuna was living in the world. Now we say this was probably like the second century in India. And uh, here we begin with, um, with one that was to become Nagarjuna's successor. The 15th ancestor was venerable Kanadeva. Kanadeva means one-eyed God. Deva is related to English divine, like celestial divine beings. And um, Kana here means one-eyed. So we might think that um, that uh, that's kind of a criticism that only, only half of his wisdom eyes are open, but we could also understand the one-eyed deva only has the one eye of oneness. He has the non-dual eye. Two eyes would be extra. He has the one eye of reality. There's also a story I heard from my teacher of um, an old fable that I don't think I've found elsewhere that um, one time Kanadeva, uh, before he had that name, was um, walking along the road and uh, and there was a blind beggar on the road and, and uh, the, the, the poor beggar said, um, oh, I can't see, are, are you a bodhisattva there? If so, like, all I ask is, is for you to give me one of your eyes so I can see again. And Kanadeva, who was practicing the bodhisattva way, uh, without much hesitation. <laughs> thought, I guess this is what it's come to. Reached in somehow and pulled out his eyeball and uh, handed it to the, to the beggar. And, um, uh, oh, part of the story, as I recall too, is that um, his teacher, maybe Nagarjuna, but maybe a teacher before Nagarjuna said, um, you're gonna be asked to, uh, to give a great gift um, at some point. And if you, can, if, you can give, if you can give a great gift without any regret, um, you will get everything you've given back and more. But if you have any regret about this giving, maybe not. So, um, so this was kind of Deva's chance. He took out his eyeball, gave it. If I give it wholeheartedly, um, I will uh, have nothing, uh, no loss. So the, the blind beggar took the eyeball, tried to like fit it into his own eye socket, which of course didn't really work very well. He's like, this doesn't work. And he smushed it. Oh. 
and threw it on the ground. And uh, at that moment, Kanadeva had just the slightest tinge <laughs> of regret. <laughs> what a waste of a good eyeball. And so he never got the eye back. <laughs> but um, it's okay because then he could be the, um, the one-eyed, non-dual deva, Kana deva, who's also known as Arya deva. And uh, um, in the outside of Zen, in the Indian middle way tradition, Arya devas considered the, the main disciple of Nagarjuna and has texts that we can find translated from Sanskrit, like the 400 verses on emptiness attributed to Aryadeva. I think we understand here is the same as Kanadeva, the noble, noble celestial one. Now Kazan tells the story, Kanadeva had an audience with the Mahasattva, the great being Nagarjuna. And uh, he was about to approach the gate. And Nagarjuna knew that he was a person of great wisdom. And so he had his assistant, his, um, his Jisha. So here we, Usually, usually it's like if there's an ab abbess or abbot, they have a jisha that's like their jiko, kind of like incense attendant um, all the time. And uh, so some Zen temples, bigger, bigger temples, we have that role. And I just find it interesting that like almost every chapter that the, the original case um, here mentions that one ancestor is the jisha for the for the previous one. They see here they say they served the teacher. Jisha means like um, like a um, assist assisting or serving person, or attendant attendant maybe better attending person. The jiko is the ko means incense. Jiko is the incense attendant. So here he had his um. Jisha, the, uh, his attendant, um, fill a bowl full of water and place it in front of him. And, uh, and Kanadeva came in, the first time meeting Nagarjuna, saw the full bowl of water, took out a needle and dropped it into the bowl of water and presented the bowl to Nagarjuna. Thus they had a mutual meeting and joyfully realized that they were of the same mind. That's the story of the, of the 15th ancestor. Doesn't say great awakening exactly, but I think this is the central story. This was their, this was like the transmission. There's a bowl of water from the teacher Nagarjuna, empty, clear, shapeless water. And uh, 
kind of Deva comes and pulls out a sharp, tiny pointed needle and some translations say plunged it into the water. Some say dropped it into the water. Some say placed it on the surface of the water. That's the story. And it, like a, it's a koan. All of these are koan cases and they're taken up as, as traditional koans uh, for people who take up traditional koans. To, um, there's responses, to traditional responses. In this case, the central questions, uh, if working with it as a koan are, uh, what is the water? What is the needle? So here, before we get into the water and needle business, um, there's all these stories have the, um, have the same format. The central story from, the, from these old lamp records is presented as a short dialogue, koan. And then there's the background circumstances. This is also from the, uh, from the old records. And, and Kazan weaves in his comments. So Kanadeva was from Southern India and belonged to the Vaishya class. And the Vaishya class, in the beginning, he sought worldly benefits and enjoyed arguments and debates. So he, some kind of practitioner, he liked to accumulate merit and liked to debate the teachings, maybe we could say. And Venerable Nagarjuna had realized the way, realized the Dharma and was in Southern India teaching. Many there in Southern India, I think these were, Buddhist practitioners. It doesn't say that, but I'm thinking that's the case. Because Nagarjuna was, was, you know, many centuries after the Buddha lived. And Dharma was flourishing throughout India at this time. And according to this story, in southern India at that time, many people were into accumulating merit and good works and so on. Uh, and when they heard Nagarjuna teach the Dharma, they said, um, well, these kind of worldly benefits that come from generating merit are the best thing for people. But Nagarjuna speaks pointlessly about Buddha nature. Who can see that? We can see the benefits of doing good in the world, but who can see Buddha nature? It's interesting because Nagarjuna Traditionally, in Indian tradition, mostly teaches emptiness. And I don't think ever mentions Buddha nature by name. Uh, there's one treatise called the Dharma Datu Stava, I think, and attributed to Nagarjuna. That is a kind of, without using the word Buddha nature, is a kind of Buddha nature treatise amongst his hundreds of other treatises. But here um, he's teaching Buddha nature and that's how he somehow um, happened to connect with Kanadeva. So um, meanwhile, the people are saying, uh, 
Nagarjuna speaks pointlessly all the time about Buddha nature. Why does he keep going on about this? What's the point? You can't even see it. Nah. <laughs> and uh, Nagarjuna said, if you want to see Buddha nature, you must eliminate arrogance, conceit, pride. Maybe they, he felt like they were kind of arrogant. They were like, we're doing a lot of good and we're getting good benefits from it. That's, this is, all, this is what it's all about. And uh, who needs Buddha nature? Nagarjuna thought they're maybe a little bit arrogant about their practice. And, and they, don't, they say they don't see Buddha nature because to see Buddha nature, you must um, let go of conceit and arrogance and pride. Now, this whole section here, not, not really the section about the bowl of water and the needle, but this whole section here about um, Nagarjuna's manifesting Buddha nature in this coming section, this whole section is quoted by Dogen Zenji, Kazan's great grandfather in the Dharma. And uh, Dogen quotes it in his essay called Shobogenzo Busho, Buddha Nature, because this is a Buddha Nature story. And so so I'm going to throw in some Dogen comments along with Kazan's here because we have them about the same story. So Dogen picked up on that line of Nagarjuna saying, to, to see Buddha nature, if you want to see Buddha nature, by the way, this see here is um, in Japanese ken and Buddha nature is busho. So it's ken busho. And we have this term ken show. It's the same ken, the same show. Ken show means seeing Buddha nature, actually. And we just abbreviate it seeing nature, seeing true nature, seeing Buddha nature. So um, it's maybe it's one of, the, one of the original places this term appears, Ken Busho. And Dogen's comments on it. If you want to see Buddha nature, you must let go of pride and arrogance and conceit. Okay, so then Dogen, Dogen's comment is, um, Seeing can, seeing is in itself letting go of conceit, letting go of arrogance. Accustom yourself to your own ordinary seeing. It's, not, it's a kind of maybe typical um, Dogen type of comment if we're talking about Kensho. Dogen was like, seemed not really like this term, Kensho. He talked about awakening and realization a lot, but maybe he felt there was, uh, it could be misunderstood that there's somebody seeing and something to be seen. So he never used the term except to criticize it. Interesting, the term Kensho. But here he, he's kind of commenting on it. He's saying this kind of seeing, 
remember the original story says, if you want to see Buddha nature, you must let go of conceit. And then Dogen's comment is, seeing is in itself letting go of conceit. I think it's a great comment, short, short line that is easy to look over in the long essay about Buddha nature. What kind of seeing is this Kensho? <laughs> this kind of seeing is in itself nothing other than just letting go of self-pride, self-conceit, thinking that I have something better than other people, that I, this separate self, am more important than other separate selves. Seeing isn't seeing true nature is in itself letting go of that kind of self-conceit. That's pretty straightforward. Uh, and the people, when, when Nagarjuna said this, the people said, well, is this Buddha nature that you're speaking of? Is it large or small? Nagarjuna answered, it's neither wide nor narrow, large nor small. It has no blessings or um, you know, rewards from good deeds. And it's not born and it doesn't die. And when the people heard how superior this principle is, they totally changed their former thinking. Or literally it says, they, um, they resumed beginner's mind, shoshin. They resumed their beginner's mind which is, I think, kind of like free from conceit. It's kind of an open, innocent, fresh, like, like I don't really know anything here. I'm just open to dharma. Lay it on me. <laughs> it's a beginner's mind. There's many possibilities. But in the conceited expert's mind, there's few possibilities. Our, our distant ancestor of Keizan, Suzuki Roshi, says, Among the people there at that time was a person of great wisdom, Kanadeva. He met Nagarjuna, as in the story above, with the bowl and the needle. And finally, they joyfully realized they were of the same mind. Nagarjuna shared his seat with Kanadeva, just as the Buddha shared his seat with Mahakashapa on Vulture Peak. And we, um, we enact this seat sharing ritually to this day um, when we have a shuso in the Zen temple. Um, usually the shuso sits right next to the, the abbot or the practice period leader and kind of shares their seat and responsibility. This comes from these old stories, right? It's kind of saying his dharma is the same as mine now. Uh, 
Then Nagarjuna taught the Dharma to the people. Remaining seated, he manifested himself in the in the shape or the sign of a full moon. And Kanadeva explained to the people, the gardener manifested as the full moon and Kanadeva said, in case you were wondering, this is Venerable Nagarjuna showing us the very essence and attributes of Buddha nature by manifesting it. If you think about it, the shape of signless samadhi is like a full moon. The meaning of Buddha nature is clarity and empty brightness. That's what Kanadeva said, kind of gave a little commentary on Nagarjuna's manifestation of the full moon. And when he finished speaking, the, the, the disc vanished, the full moon disc vanished. Nagarjuna, assuming his original form, spoke this verse. The body manifesting in the form of the full moon, you know that um, term enso, zen, is it a zen circle? N means complete or circular, and so is like form. It's like a, the form of a circle, the form of completeness. Both are our translations, which is why it's, it's a zen thing. What is the meaning of this, of this enso? It's, a, it's, a, it's the form of completeness. When you see these ensos, you know, it's kind of traditional in a calligraphic enso that they're actually the end doesn't quite meet, right? They're like slightly open. It's not interesting. Zen expression would be easy enough to just drag the brush <laughs> over that a little, but instead. <laughs> what is that? What is the tiny gap between the beginning of the circle and the end of the circle? Like a whole buffalo can pass through. The window, why doesn't its tail pass through? That's kind of enso, which we have in Zen. But so here it's um, the body manifested in the engetsu show. Engetsu so. So it's enso. It says enso. I think it's probably you know, referring to this. Enso with a getsu in the middle. Getsu's moon. So it's like complete moon form or or a round moon form. So it's a, it's a moon enso, literally. It's an en getsu so. The body manifested in the en getsu so displays the essence of all Buddhas. When they teach the Dharma, no 
form or shape is seen, thereby showing that it's not color and sound. The Dharma doesn't use color and sound. It's an, it's an empty, bright, full, clear, and so moon. The gardener spoke that verse, and then Kazan says, because this is the way it is, it's difficult to distinguish the teacher and student and their life vein merges. So then Nagarjuna, I mean, Dogen, as I mentioned, comments on this full moon, story of Nagarjuna manifesting as the full moon. And Dogen says, the form in which he manifested his body was no different from the form of us sitting here now. Right now, our bodies are manifesting the round moon shape. And this is Buddha nature. And uh, Dogen, in his Buddha nature essay, regarding the story, goes on a little rant, which he is wont to do. <laughs> Dogen likes to go on, sometimes get, goes off on rants. And the rant is about this, um, this, when he was in China, he visited this temple next door to um, Tian Tong Shan, called Ayuang Shan. I once went to, to I was visiting Tian Tong Shan in China. And uh, so to honor Dogen, I also visited Ayuang Shan. These are both active Zen temples in China um, 800 years later. And it's down the road. I, I think I took a taxi. You, you could walk it in a day. Um, and uh, they have this Buddha relic at Ayuang Shan. Um, that's, um, that, that I think uh, that Dogen talks about. It's like a, a Buddha relic from India. And they still have it there at Ayuang Shan. It's like the main tourist attraction there is you can go into this special room and they, um, it's like, I think it's like a, they, the lights are down low in the room and it's like this little stupa and they like, and they, um, they have like a little like flashlight thing and they pick it up with these like surgical gloves and there's a group of people all like walking in. And then inside this little like, it's like a little case and hanging down from the top, there's a tiny little like fragment of bone or some sort of, you know, relic but they make it so that you have to like look up from the bottom and like kind of like look under there and they're shining a flashlight in the dark room. <laughs> kind of strange, but why don't they just put it out in the, in the light and look at it from above? Because this is how the Buddha way manifests in our world system. So, um, um, they still have that there, but the, one thing that they didn't have when I went to Ayuang Shan that Dogen mentions 
is there's one of the corridors between different halls um, where there were these paintings of the of these um, all the Zen ancestors, like portraits of them painted on the wall, and um, so I guess in 800 years they have to paint the wall sometimes. So they must have painted over them, um, sadly. But uh, uh, Dogen says there are paintings of all these ancestors, and they we you can you can find them online now. Actually, there's yeah woodblock prints and sometimes paintings. No one knew really what they looked like, probably, but they imagined. And they all looked like people, pretty much like people. But um, in the series of paintings, the 14th ancestor, Nagarjuna, instead of looking like a person, he was just a, um, a, a circular full moon. He was painted as a, as a white disc from this story, right? Because they all knew about this story in the old days and the new days. So they painted the garden as special like that. And, uh, and Dogen was just there on pilgrimage and, you know, looking under that little thing to see the relic and stuff. And he saw the paintings and, what's, and pointed to, the, to this full moon. Said, what's that? And they said, that's Nagarjuna manifesting his body as the full moon shape. And Dogen said, mm, really? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Dogen knew the story too, I think, and, and said, um, that's not my understanding of Nagarjuna's manifestation of Buddha nature. That's more like a, that just looks like a painting of a rice cake. <laughs> How's that gonna satisfy hunger? So he starts challenging all the tour guides and stuff. <laughs> this is the rant that he goes on in his Buddha nature essay you can read about it and uh, he's like well let's go talk to the abbot and they're like no nah, the abbot won't be able to won't be able to tell you anything more either and uh, Dogen goes away disappointed and then um, you might say he goes on for a while but you might say the summary here was, was as I just read after this section Dogen says um the form in which Nagarjuna manifested his body was no different from the form of us sitting here now. Right now, our bodies are manifesting the complete moon form. We don't look like a bunch of white circles. So that's Dogen's comment. And uh, there's more, of course, to this story because we still haven't gotten into the, uh, the main case of presenting a bowl of water and uh, dropping a sharp needle into the water, which was the transmission of Dharma from Nagarjuna to Kamadeva. And uh, so you can you can um, let it percolate in the back of your mind. Front, front we let it rest um, during Sashin. And, uh, and for those of you who, um, who are here today for the Saturday talk, um, 
if you want to hear the sequel, the conclusion of this story, you're welcome to um, to uh, to come again tomorrow at the same time, the same place, and um, don't tell anybody the secret um, way to find the link to the talk. <laughs> but it's the it's the Saturday talk link at Austin Zen Center that you clicked on will will open um, for the next seven days at this time for these stories, if you like. This fall we've been, we've been studying Buddha nature through, mainly through the teachings of Sri Mala Devi, another of our women ancestors. And uh, she says a lot of great things about Buddha nature, but one of the um, simple ways she says it is, um, it's, it's the naturally pure mind, naturally, inherently pure mind. It's not, it's not um, by its very nature, it's, it's not defiled by dualistic thinking, dualistic perceptions, concepts of birth and concepts of death and so on. And all beings share in this Buddha nature, she says. So may we appreciate such a thing this week. <laughs> <laughs>